Majesty, an appropriate song to be singing this morning for the subject matter that we're going to be wrestling with. If you're just joining us for the first time and want to uh, catch you up to date, we've been doing a study called The God Questions, and there's six specific questions that basically each and every one of us wrestle with at some point in our lives, and maybe time and time again throughout our lives. The first one is, is God real? Is there a God? What is the evidence of God? Secondly, we looked at if God is real, then is the Bible really his, his word to us? Is it, is it true? Is it reliable? We looked at do all roads lead to heaven? There are many very sincere people that, may, that believe in many sincere things. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except, except through me. So how do we reconcile these things? The next question was, if God is a good God, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And then this morning we'll be wrestling with creation and evolution, and then next week we'll conclude the study by uh, asking the question, what happens when I die? Is there a heaven? And if there is a heaven, what is heaven going to be like? Well, this morning is going to be the uh, most controversial of all the questions. It has a way of uh, tearing at the very fabric of our culture. And the question is creation versus evolution. We are clearly taught through our school systems and so forth that it is a done deal, that evolution is a fact, it's observable, uh, there's no question about it, and therefore we must believe that evolution is the only way that the universe has come into being. But the question we're going to ask is this morning, is that necessarily true? Is it a done deal? Or does maybe God have something to say about all of this? So what we're going to do is turn in our Bibles to the very beginning of the, of the Word of God, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at the verse uh, 1 through uh, verse 5, and then we'll include verse 31. And uh, Dorcas, is Dorcas here today? She was going to read this for us in English. I don't see Dorcas. So if I could have a quick volunteer for English. Okay, Howard will do that for us. And Simone, is Simone here? Simone's going to read it for us in French. And as they make their way to the pulpit, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God? Morning. Good morning. Genesis 1, verse 1 through verse 5 and verse 31. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, mocking the first day. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, mocking the sixth day. Bonjour. Bonjour. Genèse chapitre 1 du premier cinquième verset. Au commencement, Dieu créa les cieux et la terre. La terre était informe et vide. Il avait des ténèbres à la surface de l'abîme et l'esprit de Dieu s'est mouvait au-dessus des eaux. Dieu dit que la lumière soit et la lumière fit. Dieu vit que la lumière était bonne et Dieu sépara la lumière avec les ténèbres. 
Dieu appela la lumière et les jours, il appela les ténèbres nuit. Ainsi, il y un soir, il y un matin, ce fut les premiers jours. Dieu vit tout ce qu'il avait fait et voici, cela était très bon. Ainsi, il y un soir, il y un matin, ce fut les sixième jours. Lord, we thank you for your magnificent witness of your creation. It is stunning and wonderful. But at the same time, Lord, there's great controversy in your world. And we pray this morning that you would bring some clarity and insight to your people. Because it is your heart's desire that your people would be bold in a world that's in desperate need of the love and grace of Jesus. So we pray, Father, that you would teach us from your word. We thank you and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, creation and evolution. It is a highly controversial subject matter. And unfortunately, because it's controversial and very intimidating for those of us who are Christians, those of us who believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, we have a tendency to be intimidated and we have a tendency to uh, retreat from the culture in general. But I'm hoping this morning that we will have the opportunity to see that we don't have to be intimidated. We don't have to retreat. In fact, we actually have some pretty profound facts uh, on God's side. And God doesn't have to apologize to anybody. Uh, God is God, and he's made it very, very clear who he is and what he has done. A number of years ago, uh, I went with my youngest son, Mike, to buy a car. And... Um, We had an opportunity to spend a little bit of time with the salesman. We were going through the process of trying to get the price down. Most of you have been through that. And as we were sitting with the salesman, I had some uh, tracks in my pocket, so I handed him a track to begin to talk a little bit about God. And right away, he said that he was an atheist. And so I asked him a couple of questions about being an atheist. And then I said to him, in your position, uh, My understanding is that you believe that we came from nothing and ultimately we're going to nothing. And he agreed with that. And I said, well, if that is true, then can you give me an idea of the meaning and the purpose of life? Now, I asked that same question to a whole bunch of students out in front of uh, MIT one time a number of years ago. Uh, they, they buried me with all their intelligence, but they had a, this Young man, the salesman, he had a very difficult time answering that question, and so did the stu students at MIT answering that question. If it is true that we came from nothing and we're going to nothing, is there any meaning and is there any purpose to life? And the answer is no, there isn't. The only way that we find meaning and purpose to life is in God. And God declares that he is the creator and that this world, this universe, is beautifully fashioned and it has meaning and it has purpose. So the first thing, if you've got your pen and your pencil out and if you would take out your uh, outline with me, it looks like this. The first thing that I'd like to uh, write down, th like to have you think about, is that God's creation is magnificent. Magnificent. It is not of randomness but it is of the hand of God. We looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago when we talk, talked about whether or not God is real in Psalm 19.1. It declares, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. 
So the word of God helps us understand the beauty, but we can observe the beauty and the magnificence of God's creation. But we're talking about the difference between creation and evolution. So I want to begin with what the evolutionists tell us, how they, they define evolution. And you might want to write this down. Hopefully it's helpful to you. It goes like this. Time plus chance plus natural selection equals all that we see and all that we experience. So let me say it again. Time. In other words, vast, a vast amount of time. Um, there are chance, chance systems or a randomness that happens that brings certain elements together. Then through a process of natural selection, and you're familiar with that, natural selection would be the, the strongest survive, the fittest survive, the weaker fall away, and that's how we know, that's how we have life that we experience and that we see today. Now, on the surface, we have to admit that sounds very plausible and, and sounds... Uh, it sounds like that's exactly what we experience. However, what I want to do over the next few moments is give you some challenges to evolution that you and I need to think about. And these challenges aren't necessarily from creationists. They're from those in the scientific community, and they're also from those that are atheists. And I'll give you a couple of, uh, I'll give you a couple of quotes from atheists. And where you see P, the first thing I want you to write down is the word probabilities. Probabilities. Now, what that means is what is the likelihood that something will come from nothing? Scientists tell us through uh, carbon dating that there is a fixed period of time in which the Earth began and, and now exists. In other words, that fixed period of time is 13.73 billion years. 13.73 billion years. So scientists tell us that the universe came into being 13.73 billion years ago. So once again, that is a fixed amount of time. Now what they think about is this. How can life come into being spontaneously? What are the odds of that? And they know what the odds of that, and the odds of that, and you might want to write this down, is 10, one chance, and 10 to the 4,925th power. If you're a mathematician, you know, uh, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, you'd write the 10 down, and then you'd write down 4,925 and little numbers beside it. One chance and 4,900, uh, excuse me, one chance to the 10th to the 4,925th power. Now, the problem is this. The universe has not been in existence long enough for that scenario to happen that life could come from non-life spontaneously. Now, to give you an idea, an illustration in your mind, to, 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 to kind of put your, to grasp this, somebody once said it would, be, it would be like taking a document, like the Constitution of the, of the United States, or the Declaration of Independence, tearing it into pieces, putting it into a paper bag, getting into an airplane, and flying up into the air, and then dumping out the contents. Now, the question is this. How many times would, you, would it be likely that you would do that over and over again until you've dumped out the contents and all the contents on the way down assemble themselves so that when that piece of paper comes back together again, lands on the ground, you would be able to read every sentence and it would make sense? That is the likelihood of something coming from nothing or something spontaneously coming into being that is life. 
So that's what they mean by probabilities. Second thing that I want you to write down is the word decay. Now decay has to do with what's called the second law of thermodynamics or entropy. The second law of thermodynamics or entropy. And basically what that scientific law tells us is things are not getting better, things are getting worse. Things aren't getting better, things are going towards decay. Now what that means is this. If you think of a giraffe, for example, when a, that a giraffe early on in the evolutionary cycle had a short neck. Now what the evolutionists would say is the giraffe would continue to stretch to reach to, to eat from a tree. As that, as that giraffe would stretch, it would have an impact on the cells in the giraffe body so that over millions and millions of years, those cells would mutate, allowing the giraffe, the next generation of giraffe, their necks to be a little longer, the next generation, their necks to be a little bit longer, on and on and on, until they, they have the length of the neck that they have now. So in other words, the cells would be impacted by the, by the environment and so forth that would, make, that would bring about change. But here's the problem. When cells are observed in life, those that are called mutations don't go towards the better, they go towards the worse. They go towards the worse, they go towards death. So consequently, that can't possibly be. The entropy is moving towards the bad instead of towards the good. Now listen to uh, a woman by the name of Lynn Margulis. Lynn Margulis was the wife of a man named Carl Sagan. Those of you who are in my generation, you would recognize that name, Carl Sagan. He was a very well-known scientist. Uh, an evolutionist, yet his wife said this. She was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Neo-Darwinists say that new species emerge when mutations occur, just what we're talking about, the cell, and modify an organism. I was taught over and over again that the accumulation of random mutations led to evolutionary change, led to new species. I believed it until I looked for evidence. New mutations don't create new species, they create offsprings that are impaired. Mutations, in summary, tend to induce sickness, death, or deficiencies. No evidence in the vast literature of hereditary changes show an unambiguous evidence that random mutation itself, even with geographical isolations of populations, lead to speciations or new, new beings or, new, uh, or uh, change in any uh, of the species. Fred Hoyle, who is an atheist scientist, said this, Darwinian theory is wrong because random variations tend to worsen performance, just what we're talking about, go towards the bad, as indeed common sense suggests they must do. So the second law, called the entropy, won't allow for evolution to be true. Third thing that I want you to write down is the word complex. Word complex. And if you want to write beside that, it's kind of a long word, but irreducible complexities. Now what that means is there has to be all kinds of different variables, all kinds of different things come together at the same time for something to be, uh, for, for change to happen, for something to, to come into place. For example, if you think of uh, the fish that got closer to the shore, they had to grow legs uh, to, once, to finally come on shore and then to climb trees and so on and so forth in the evolutionary process. But if you think about that, what was the process? How did they lose their gills and begin to develop lungs? All of these things had to come into play at one time so that they could breathe on land. 
You have within your eye millions of cells uh, that have to, uh, light-sensitive photocells that all have to come into play at the same time so that you can see. What was the process of that in the evolutionary uh, paradigm? That all of these things could come together at just the right time so that a, an animal or you and I could see. A, a professor by the name of Michael Behe likened it to a mousetrap. If you could think of a mousetrap, and the base of a mousetrap is wood, how many billions of years had to come about so that that was just the right size? And how many billions of years had to come about so that uh, metal would begin to form on that mousetrap and it would have the right tension and so on and so forth so that all of those things would come together at the right time that it could function like a mousetrap? These are irreducible complexities. All of these things had to come together at, the, at precisely the right time for something to be able to function and function properly. So it's virtually impossible for all of these things uh, if we use a logical, logical thinking. Now the next thing I want you to write down is the word Cambrian. C-A-M-B-R-I-A-N, or Cambrian. Now this Cambrian, and it's called the Cambrian Explosion, um, this was, Darwin himself admitted that this is, was his dilemma, that his problem with his theory, and it goes like this. The lowest strata that we see on the Earth's surface, they've called it the Cambrian strata, or the, uh, the Cambrian location. Everything else is piled on top of that. So it would make sense that if evolution is true, then we could go to the lowest strata and we would see a process of small forms becoming complex forms. But in this Cambrian explosion or this Cambrian location on the Earth's surface, or I'm sorry, underneath the Earth's surface, prior to that, there was nothing but bacteria. 540 million years ago, scientists tell us, in a split second, all of a sudden, in that Cambrian strata, there was suddenly fully formed life. They're called trilobites. Prior to the trilobites, there is nothing but bacteria. So the question that Darwin asked was, how did those trilobites come into being without something that preceded them? Now Darwin concluded that over the, uh, over the years ahead, that, they, that uh, through discoveries and searching the, uh, the earth more and more, that those, those preliminary beings would surface, they would show up. 150 years since he wrote his book, not one has shown up. That suddenly life came into being in a split second. Now the last thing I want you to write down is the word nothing. Because the critical claim in all of this is that something came from nothing. That the universe came into being all by itself without any God to do anything to bring it about. In fact, there's a man by the name of, a brilliant man by the name of Lawrence Krauss. He has a number one bestseller that's out in the world today, and he's trying to explain somehow the universe came into being uh, all on its own. But it's already been dismantled because it is not possible. It's not logical that something could come from nothing. But as we think about these things this morning, there's something even deeper than all of this that we need to be concerned about. And what's deeper is this. Evolution is not only a way to try to explain the world without God, it's also a philosophy. And it's a philosophy of absolute and utter despair. 
When we look around the world today, there's more and more growing chaos, particularly in the lives of young people, because there's nothing but despair in their lives. If we came from nothing and we're going to nothing, then life has no meaning, it has no purpose. I want you to hear the words of Richard Dawkins, another brilliant person, brilliant man, who despises Christianity and is doing everything in his power to wipe Christianity from the face of the earth. Yet these are his words about Darwinianism, about uh, evolution. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing. Now listen to this. Nothing but pitiless indifference. That sums up evolution. That the world has no meaning and no purpose. It's called nihilism. But, my friends, it is not true. God's creation is magnificent beyond imagination. I want you to compare Dawkins' words to the words of the Apostle Paul at the bottom of your paper. Listen to this. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God is magnificent and his creation is magnificent. And my friends, it is true that he spoke it into being. And not only did he speak it into being, it has purpose. So the second thing that I want you to write down at the bottom of your paper, if you would please. God's word, and this is the word of God that we're speaking of, has purpose. Everything about what God has done has meaning and purpose, and it has meaning and purpose for each and every one of us, particularly for those who believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, that we might have hope in our lives. And in a moment, we're going to see not only that we would have hope in our lives, that we are the agents of that hope in a world that is broken and in growing chaos. Listen to what uh, the Apostle John says in 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know every fiber, every fabric of your being would know that God is real and that because of God, you have eternal life. Now, having said that, I want to offer a bit of a caution here about the Word of God. We have to be careful that we don't try to force the Word of God to say something that it is not saying. And I'm afraid that that's what we do a lot when it comes to creation and evolution. And here's what I'm talking about. When we read the the Word of God, these first beautiful and wonderful words of creation, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We need to understand that this document is about the who... And it's about the why. Now, here's what I mean. It's about the who. This document, first of all, is less about creation and more about God. The magnificence and the glory of God. It is God who spoke all things into being. He makes no excuses to anybody. He simply declares, I am the one. And what the word of God is all about is about him. It's not so much about you and me. It's not so much about creation. It's about the glory of God and his magnificent acts. And in his magnificent acts, his love towards all that he has created, and particularly people. God loves people. 
So it's the who being God and the why. The why being God saying, I have created all of this because I love you, I care for you, I want you to have it, I want you to have dominion over it, I want you to love me, I want you to enjoy me, I want you to, to enjoy everything that, I, that I've given to you. Take a look at Genesis chapter uh, 1, verse 28 with me. God blessed them, the man and the woman, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and, and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God blessed them. The who is God, the why. Why did he do this? He did this to bless people, to bless you and me, to, to, that we might experience his love. And that we might have dominion over all that he created. So it's the who and the why. And I say that because we have to be careful because God does not give us the how. In Psalm 139, 13, the, the psalmist says this. King David says this. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now... He, he, he's declaring, I, God, have done this. I have done this for you because I love you and I care for you. But he doesn't say how. He doesn't say, I, did, I brought this DNA molecule together with this DNA molecule and so on and so forth, and then you became knitted together. No, he simply said, I did this for you because I love you and I care for you. And he's given to us this magnificent word, this word of God. Now, what you, have to, you and I have to understand is God's word is for God's people. God did not write the Bible for those who do not believe. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the, the word of God is foolishness to those who do not believe. So we've got to be careful that we don't take the Bible and try to tell people this is the scientific evidence that God has given us. That's not why God wrote the Bible. Take a look at Romans 8, 16 with me for just a moment, right just above the middle of your piece of paper. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God has given us his word, his magnificent word, to help us understand who has put all things into place? It's God. And why he has done it? Because he loves us and he cares for us. But he doesn't necessarily tell us how he did it. The how part is for the scientists. That's their job, to, to, to discover the depths and the riches of God. But, but, that is not to say that there aren't these wonderful scientific things in the Word of God that are stunning and amazing. And I want to give you a few of them. Take a look at your paper with me. And you can look these up uh, in your Bibles during the week. First of all, where the Word says sphere, it's amazing. The prophet Isaiah in 800 B.C. said this, that the, the earth is a sphere, it's a globe, it's a circle under the feet of God. Now, the scientists told us back in those days and for centuries after those days that the world was flat. But the word of God said it was round. It was a sphere. That, that, uh, when it says circle, that Hebrew word means sphere. Secondly, expanding universe. I'm going to tell you about a man named uh, uh, Hugh Ross in just a few minutes, but uh, he is an atheist, astrophysicist, cosmologist, and when he opened up the Bible and began to read it, he was stunned because the Bible talked about the expanding heavens. Now, Einstein, back in the uh, 40s and 50s, and he and another man by the name of uh, Sir Frederick Hoyle, uh, they were convinced that the universe had existed forever and it was static. 
In fact, Einstein was determined to prove that it was static, but his own studies, he had to begrudgingly admit that the universe has a beginning. It did come into existence suddenly. And, and in fact, he was one of the ones that proved that it came into to existence suddenly. But the scriptures have said from the beginning that the heavens were expanding. And that's what scientists have found out, that the scriptures affirm science through all, all throughout scripture. Zechariah speaks of it in chapter 12, verse 1. You, God, are the ones that had the expanding heavens, that you stretched out the heavens. So the scriptures affirm what the scientists have found out. Third thing that I want you to look at is mountains and sea in Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, Jonah says, and I went down to the footholds of the mountains. Now, once again, this would have been written about 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And he was describing mountains under the sea. Well, do you know when they discovered mountains under the sea? In the 20th century, when they came up with sonar, for the first time they began to discover mountains. Now, how did this nomad know that there were mountains at the bottom of the sea uh, almost 3,000 years before mountains under the bottom of the sea were discovered? It is amazing. The last thing I want you to take a look at is prophecies. In Isaiah 42.9, God says that I am God because I tell the future before the beginning. And all throughout Scripture, time and time again, God tells the future before it happens. Psalm 22, Psalm uh, uh, 16, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah 53. All throughout the Scriptures, time and time again, we see these amazing facts. But it all comes back to understanding that God's Word is, a, is magnificent, but God's Word has been given to His people. And it's profoundly important for us to understand because as people proclaim evolution more and more and more in our world today, it is a, it's, it's a declaration of despair when the word of God gives us hope. So the third thing that I want you to write down on your outline is this. God's people are his agents for hope. You see, you count in this broken world because you are the one that carries the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life and through your life to a broken world. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. That is amazing. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, there is a great debate between creation and evolution. We get intimidated by that. We withdraw from culture. We keep our mouths shut. But the reality of it is there are more and more scientists who are atheists that are saying, I can't believe in evolution anymore because it doesn't line up with the facts. So they are saying this, yet we are retreating. We are the ones that have hope. We are the ones that bring good news to a broken world. A world that is growing in chaos. People need to hear that hope so we can't keep our light. Jesus said you are salt and light. We can't keep our light underneath a bushel. Listen to what uh, Genesis 1.26 says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Now, you've got to know a little bit about Hebrew to, to uh, come to, the, uh, <laughs> to, to see how stunning this is. 
where it says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, that word is a very special Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word is bara. It's the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when it says, in the beginning, God created. That word created is the same word, and the word is bara. That's a special word, and it's used very, very seldom in all the Bible, because what it means is God creating something out of nothing. Theologians call it ex nihilo. So it's to make something out of nothing, and that is what the, that's what the great debate is. How on earth did this universe come into being? How did something come out of nothing? Well, God declares in his word 3,500 years ago, I spoke it into being. It came into being, and I did it out of nothing. Now, he uses that same word to say that he has created the man and the woman. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, it says that he formed the man, the man out of the dust, and then he breathed into him his life. And the Hebrew word is nephesh, and he became a living being. So it's creating something out of nothing. There was, there, was, there was nothing there, and all of a sudden it came to light, and it came to life. Now, he goes on to say in the passage so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creation that moved along the ground. Bara, something out of nothing. So the man is distinct from all of the animals. The man is in the image, in the likeness of God. Now, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is spirit. So that doesn't mean that the human being looks like God, because God is spirit. You can't see spirit. But we are in the nature and the character of God. We are eternal beings made in the likeness of God, the image of God. And what that means is we are distinct from the animal, animal population all around us because we are able now to communicate with God. The Spirit of God lives in all those who have believed in Christ as Lord and Savior. So therefore we can communicate, we can pray, we can hear from God, we can read His Word. But most importantly... We are called by God to reflect him to the world around us. Once again, we are ambassadors of the good news of the gospel of Christ. Now, we also know, if you were here with us last week, that the, the man and the woman rebelled against God. Sin and death came into God's good creation and marred and distorted everything. That's why we experience the, the tragedy of the world today. But God in his goodness, God in his love, God in his grace came into the world in Christ Jesus. He bore our sins on the cross. He broke the curse of sin and death by taking it to the grave, dying for our sins, and then being mightily resurrected on the third day so that all who put their trust and faith in Christ Jesus are born of the Spirit of God. And having been born of the Spirit of God, we are called by God to represent God in a broken world. We are ambassadors. We are agents of hope in the broken world. Paul says it beautifully. Look at the bottom of your paper, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now you've got to think about that. Think about it deeply. Because in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God spoke and suddenly there was light, suddenly there was life. Where there was darkness and death and formless and void, suddenly by his powerful word, something came to life. The evolutionists said that some rocks banged together and, and life came, or some bolt of lightning came and life came. No, it was God who spoke into darkness, God spoke into death, and suddenly there was light and there was life. Now I say that because... 
when I was 12 or 13 years old, two young college students came into my life and they spoke into my life where there was darkness and there was death and there was nothingness and they told me the gospel of Jesus. And I believed that gospel of Jesus and something, suddenly something came alive in me. I became born of the Spirit of God. I began changed by the love of God. And if you are here today and someone spoke into you, what they spoke into you was the very words of God and the word of God entered into darkness and you were dead in your sins and suddenly, bang, you came alive in Christ Jesus. And because you came alive in Christ Jesus, you are filled with hope. You're not the product of random events. You're the product of the powerful word of God speaking into darkness and coming alive in Christ. You have the good news of the gospel of Jesus living inside of you. And you live in a world that's in desperate need of that. People all around you need to hear that good news. People all around you need you to speak into their lives where there's darkness and death and hopelessness and despair so that they too might come alive in Christ Jesus. So what do we do? Well, I want you to take a look at the bottom of the paper with me. And I want you to see Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. Listen to these words. The wicked flee, though no one pursues. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Listen to me. We are intimidated by the things of evolution. It sounds plausible. The, the people are very aggressive. They're evangelistic about evolution. But my friends, the facts aren't there. It's not true. God is true. We need to be bold as lions. We need to not be in retreat. We need to be advancing the gospel of Jesus in the world. So what are you going to do about it? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Listen. The gospel of Jesus is powerful. And when you begin to speak it in the lives of others, it has a way of cutting into the very soul and spirit, joints and marrow of a human being to help them to come alive in Christ. So you need to be bold and you need to begin to share the gospel of Jesus with those around, not retreating, but moving forward and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus. I mentioned a man by the name of Dr. Hugh Ross a, a few moments ago. And uh, he's a wonderful man of God. He, uh, he's a genius, grew up as a genius, a child prodigy. He loved cosmology. He loved astrophysicists. He loved the universe. He, he just ate up everything, learning about the universe and how it came into being and so on and so forth. His parents were not Christian, so he, he grew up in, a, in a, what we would call a pagan home. And he became very annoyed with the religion because for him, religion was... Uh, interfering with people coming to know the real truth of evolution and how the universe came into being uh, according to a uh, random process. Well, he took it upon himself as a young man during his college years that he would read sacred documents so that once in a while he could put all of that to bed and he could, he could, uh, he could take a, a, a study of the Hindus or whatever it is, you know, Buddhism, whatever it is, and prove that it had nothing to do with anything about the universe and how the universe came into being. And he did exactly that. He began to read these sacred documents. He said he read them until he came to the Bible. 
And he opened up the Bible, and the very first, very first sentence, very first verse stunned him because it said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, right there in that one verse, everything was there. Time was there. Motion was there. Space was there. Everything that an astrophysicist, everything that a cosmologist deals with, wrestles with, everything was in that first verse, and he couldn't believe it. Well, he couldn't get enough of it. He began to read more and more of the Bible. He began to read things like uh, the Lord stretches out the heavens. And he said, we know for a fact from Hoyle and Einstein that the heavens are being stretched out. That the universe had a beginning and the universe is, is expanding, but it's slowing down as it expands. And that's what scripture says in 2 Peter, that things are slowing down and someday they're all going to end. Well, he studied the scriptures, the Bible, in science for a year until he came to the realization that he had, that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was, God Almighty, and that he had to do something about it, that he had to repent of his sins and he had to believe on Christ as Lord and Savior, but he said, I couldn't do it. And I couldn't do it because I was worried about what people would think of me. What would my parents think of me? What would my colleagues think of me? What would the other students think of me? What would it do to my science career if I began to declare that I was a Christian? But at the same time, he knew that everything that he read in the Bible had a shelf life, that he had to make a decision. He didn't know how long he was going to live. You don't know how long you're going to live. No one guarantees that we're going to put our head on the pillow tonight. So he knew that he had to do something about this. So finally, he got alone, and he believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. He prayed, he opened up his heart, his life, and he believed in Christ as Lord and Savior. And he was changed and transformed that moment. For the last 30 years, God has used him dramatically to witness to other atheistic scientists about the truth and the reality of the Word of God and how God uses science to help us understand that God is real. And he's winning more and more people to faith in Jesus. He goes all over the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and reconciling it to science. He has become an agent of hope. Who you are, wherever you are, you are an agent of hope. You've got to do your own study. You've got to do your own thinking. You've got to come to a conclusion. Is this true or is it not true? And then you've got to decide, what am I going to do about this? Because God, my friends, is calling each and every one of us to be agents of hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. You are amazing in every possible way. But God, we confess freely and openly. I confess freely and openly. Many times I am intimidated by the things of science. It seems like they've got all the facts. It seems like they've got all the answers. But at the same time, science helps us see that they don't have all the facts. They don't have all the answers. But you, God, are the answer. We pray, Father that you would build us up in our faith in Jesus, that you would strengthen us, that we would not be intimidated by the world around us. Quite the opposite, that we would be strengthened and used by you to bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus into a world that's in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus. And this morning, Lord, I pray for anybody here that 
may have never surrendered to Jesus. As a matter of fact, it might be the first time they're hearing about what it is to surrender to Jesus. If you're here today and you've never received the gospel of Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now, today. Because the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. You have no idea how long you will live. And you have no idea whether you will ever get another chance like you're getting today. If you would like to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, what you need to understand is that you have sinned against God. And you know that because each and every one of us have lied, we've stolen, we've broken God's laws. We've used God's name in vain. We've coveted. And because we've broken God's laws, we are alienated from God, but God loves us, and he sent Jesus to die for us. And what you need to do right now is to repent of your sin, and here's how you do it. Simply say this in the quietness of your own mind and of your own heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I confess that I've sinned against you. And then say, I'm sorry, God, but I thank you that you died on the cross for me. And then say, Lord, Lord Jesus, here and now, come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. And then say, Jesus, I want to live my life for you. I want to stop running from you. I want to stop doing the things that I've been doing. I'm ashamed of them. I want to live for you. I want to do what's right now, God, by faith. Live with you and walk with you. And then just say, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you've forgiven me. Thank you that you've given me eternal life. Thank you that you've given it to me, Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray for us. Once again, it's so easy to be intimidated. But we, there's no reason for us to be intimidated. We have truth. And you have called us to share that good news with others. So I pray for each and every one of us that you will give us opportunities in this very week, this week, to share the gospel with others. We look forward to that great news, and we thank you for this, Lord, and pray for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. We invite you, if you would, to stand together with us, and let's sing together Jesus Messiah.